If people walk away from this book or this, you know, the discussion that we're hoping to spur here, thinking only one thought, which is, I have a choice. If I see a complicated problem in my personal life, my organization, society, I have a choice between a complicated solution and a simple solution. If that's all they walk away with, we will be very happy. What if the simplest option was the best option? That's something that um, a lot of people struggle with. We live in a complex, complicated world, and we tend to assume that to get where we want to go, to build what we want to build, to create amazing things and solve big problems, well, the process, the answers, the rules have to be big and complex too. In this week's conversation with the author of a book called Simple Rules, Donald Sell, we dive into this and we actually really pull back a lot of the mythology and he actually shares some pretty interesting research that shows that in fact, simple very often is best. I'm Jonathan Fields and this is Good Life Project. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. All right, so you threw it out there. So let's. I think this is a fun place to start. So I'm sitting across from the table from a clearly extremely accomplished, you know, like smart, intelligent, academic, and professional world um, man. And um, and but you have a history as a bouncer and a biker bar in your life. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I worked my way through college and one of the, one of the jobs I had was working as a bouncer in a bar and the bar was exactly, almost exactly halfway between Harvard and MIT on Mass Ave. Right. So if I tell you that, or if I tell most people that they picture some, you know, Ivy covered right, bar exactly. with people sitting around talking about Proust or string theory or right. something. Pick you up while they're picking you up. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, probably a, a, a no alcohol beer, please. Right, right. And, uh, this bar wasn't that at all. So it had all glass windows. Uh, and it had a live band every night. And that, that turns out is the magic formula for attracting bikers. In this case, the local, uh, motorcycle club, the Rumpot Rustlers. And the reason for this is, of course, they, you know, they like to listen to the bands, uh, seven nights a week. That was great. Right. But also they could watch their Harleys while they were drinking. Ah, and, and, and this is pretty much, yeah, this is pretty much nirvana for, uh, for bikers. So. Uh, and the reason I end up, uh, ended up in that job is the owner of the bar was a Harvard alum and he'd hire folks from the Harvard hockey team and the Harvard boxing club. And I, I boxed through college. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I kind of need the job. It was great money. It was a pretty rough place, right? Like, I, you know, I was a middleweight and there were a lot of heavyweights in that <laughs> bar. So, you know, I was trying to punch above my weight and it wasn't working particularly well. Yeah. Uh, in my first month on the job, I made two trips to the emergency room. Aye. So, uh, uh, you know, Boom. So uh, I I realized I was going to have to use a different strategy. 
Um, and so I remember quite clearly after the second trip to the emergency room, kind of thinking, okay, what, what can I do to manage this situation? Great job, you know, meet interesting people, great bands, you know, free drinks. What, what's not good money? What's not to like? But, um, uh, you know, brute force was not working for me. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a set of rules. So the first one was don't let trouble in the door. So it turns out it is so much easier to keep a knucklehead out of the door than throw a knucklehead out the door later. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second one was, um, uh, sober beats drunk. So it turns out people think like, you know, when you're drunk, you're a good fighter. The exact opposite is true. You're more prone to fight, but your reflexes are slow and so forth. Uh, so I wouldn't start drinking till the bar closed, which, you know, frankly might have been bar policy. Anyway, I'm not, right. yeah, <laughs> that might have been what we were supposed to do anyway. Um, the third rule was for certain types of bands, like particularly ska, heavy metal, uh, and punk, there were always fights. So, you know, I just go to the owner or the manager and say, listen, let's get another guy in the door just, you know, for these. But by far the most useful rule was to keep the bikers on side. So, like, common sense dictated you don't tick the bikers off, you know, because yeah. these, these are guys. They're big guys. They're big guys right. with nicknames like, and I kid you not, Shotgun, Mother Killer, Man Mountain, you know. So, with, with nicknames like this, you have to – you want to, you know, kind of keep them on side. Yeah, it's like you guys. Whatever we need to do to be friends, let's let's figure that exactly. out. Exactly. <laughs> so right. So common sense, you don't want to take them off. But I went beyond that. You know, if I went to get pizza, I'd buy them pizza. If their friends came, I let them in for free. You know, if yeah. they had to go out transact their business, I'd watch their bikes, whatever. So we had, I don't know if it's quite a friendship, but at least yeah. a, a cordial relationship, uh, which worked out really well. So, you know, it'd be a Friday night, you know, the place is rocking. I look over and here's three knuckleheads and they're about to mix it up. You know, Donnie Brook is just about to burst out. I'm like, oh, God, not another trip to the emergency room, right? That I don't need. So I'd walk up and I always go to this guy, Man Mountain, who was terrific. So he was, Man Mountain was probably like six, seven, six, eight, huge guy, big, bushy beard, named. appropriately right. named, yes, not ironically right. named. Uh, and he would only wear his vest, not a shirt underneath, not a jacket over, including through the depths of a Boston winter, riding his Harley down Mass Ave. Oh, you know? So the point is, he was big and had a high tolerance for pain, right, yeah, this guy. Clearly. So I'd walk over, I'd say, Man Mountain, you, you might come with me. And the funny thing was, he was like the gentlest of the lot. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, what do you have to prove? You're, you know, 6'8". Right. Man mom. Uh, so I'd walk over to these knuckleheads and they're, you know, grumbling, pounding chest and so forth. You know, testosterone is uh, flying. I say, guys, look, you have two options. One, you can leave now. Like, oh, we're not leaving now, you know. I say, or two, I can introduce you to my friend Man Mountain. And they'd look up at him and it'd be like, it never failed. It'd be like, oh, so sorry. You know, meekly put down their glass and, you know, yep. so sorry, so sorry. And, and walk out the door. So that's, that's when I really kind of stumbled upon how effective these simple rules can be in everyday life. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I had a similar tactic in seventh grade, actually, but my, uh, my man mountain was named truck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Great rule. And interestingly enough, I'm remembering back and I'm pretty sure he used to wear a leather vest to school, um, with a t-shirt. We had to wear t-shirts in school, uh -huh. but like through the winter, there's pretty much nothing else. And he was, I think, shaving around fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> But he was my homie. It's like if I got in trouble, I was not a big kid and I was a lover, not a fighter. So, all right. Oh, that's great. Um, so you get fascinated with this whole concept of simple rules. And I actually, I want to jump into that. Um, but, but I want to go back a little bit with you mm -hmm. also. And, um, so you worked your way through college. Where did you actually grow up? Uh, Ohio. Yeah. Oh, just outside Ohio. of Cleveland. Ah. What kind of, uh, place was it? Well, the town, uh, we grew up to, in the town literally next door to where Leave It to Beaver was set. Oh, so, no, <laughs> you know, it pretty much says it all. It was very, you it know, kind of small like town, you know, kind of quiet. A great place to grow up. Yeah. So how'd you end? And then at some point you end up going to, well, how, you also said you're a boxer. Yeah. Yeah. Was that right. something you were doing younger as a kid? Uh, I, I did, uh, I really started seriously in college. No. Um, or as, as serious as I ever got as my, you know, as my coach just to, used to <laughs> remind me, don't lead with the chin. Don't lead with the chin. So, uh, you know, it was with more enthusiasm than skill, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you end up at some point then, uh, at Harvard. What were you studying undergrad? Uh, I started as a classics major. Uh, and then I realized that was inter seriously interfering with my drinking, at which point I shifted to government, which was a much <laughs> less onerous, uh, major. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's what I ended up doing. So from there, what was, um, what was interesting to you about, I mean, obviously it's Harvard, so you want to go there. Um, I'm, it's, it's, I'm kind of funny because I'm thinking about some of my friends who I went to school with who ended up in Harvard and where they ended up afterwards. And some, some, cause it's, it's funny. I think there's this public perception that if you go to Harvard, the path from there is, um, sort of very mainstream. You either go into investment banking or consulting or, or a lawyer. Um, but what I, what was interesting to me is that when I looked at sort of your path, at some point you turn around and you become professor of entrepreneurship at Harvard, which which just felt odd to me. 
because um, I did, I've never looked at Harvard as sort of saying, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I really want to know about it. And mm-hmm. that's the place to go. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, so I, I would not describe my path as linear. You know? <laughs> it was, there were a lot of twists and turns and, you know, setbacks and adjustments. But, uh, yeah, so I did end up teaching entrepreneurship for a while at Harvard. And, um, it, it is interesting, you know, historically, I think Harvard Business School has been kind of a bastion of the establishment. So if you go to Spangler Hall, which is a new building on campus, it, it just looks like, uh, you know, when there is a revolt against the one percent, they're going to attack there first. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of sends this country club right. entitlement. But the reality is, there has always been an undercurrent, uh, starting with a guy named Howard Stevenson, who's great, uh, great mentor uh, to many of us who are interested in entrepreneurship. Of, you know, family businesses, startups, technology based mm-hmm. startups. Uh, and that's grown and grown. And I, I can't remember. It was one of the major business magazines, Fortune Forbes, Business Week, one of them. It might even have been the New York Times actually recently uh, ranked business schools by their specialty. And this was in the past month, I think. And they said, if you want to become an entrepreneur, Harvard uh, Business School is the place to go of all the business schools. Huh, so it's, yeah, it is kind of surprising, but it's, um, there's been a big investment. Uh, the new dean, uh, or reason, uh, the current dean, uh, Nitin Oria, uh, has made a big investment. There's a, a strong faculty there. So yeah, surprisingly, it's a pretty good place for, for folks who are interested in pursuing that path. Yeah. So what makes you interested in, in that? Um, well, I guess it's at some, let's kind of fill out your path a little bit here. Um, so you go from undergrad um, in government affairs, it was? Uh, yeah, uh, government. So at Harvard, government. they don't teach political science. That implies you're studying it. They teach government. <laughs> that implies you're doing it. You know, like go off and be a senator, young hey, person. Man, words matter. Yeah. Um, so did you actually go into government in any way, shape, or form, or you went? No. Uh, so, I, you know, after I graduated, uh, my then-girlfriend, now wife, and I uh, kicked around Europe for a year. Oh, nice. um, we had... Basically, a friend of mine and I had this harebrained scheme that we're going to import Harleys to Europe and resell them. So I'm seeing this common theme around motorcycles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Mo- motorcycles and yeah, uh, and pain. So, uh, and you know, I started a little moving company. And but anyway, so that you know, basically, my my then girlfriend Teresa. Uh, you know, gave me a choice, which is either you get like a, a real job, mm-hmm. uh, i.e. 9 to 5, not 5 p.m. to 9 a.m., or, you know, we part ways. So, uh, I went and got a job with a consulting firm called McKinsey, sure. uh, and did that for a couple of years. And, you know, that was, that was great. I learned a, a ton, very good, uh, great learning experience, especially for me. Like, I, I literally every day, cause I was complete, you know, I was working at a bar, I was boxing, I, you know, my friends were all knuckleheads. I was a knucklehead through college and before. And, you know, so I kind of expect every day somebody from McKinsey would jump out and say, surprise, the gig is off. You know, <laughs> you know, here's your severance pay. The joke is up. So, you know, I was very focused on doing a good job because yeah. I, I, you know, it was clear to me I was a hiring mistake. Um, so I uh, did that for a couple of years. You know, again, by kind of fortune, I met somebody, a guy named Chuck Ames and, uh, had an offer to go work in private equity at CDR. Um, and, uh, uh, and, which was terrific because what was neat about that firm was you not only invested. So I was an investor in, a, you know, the, uh, the big deal we did at that one, at that point was Unirail Goodrich, a big tire company, uh, but was also part of the management team sent in to, to run this company. So I learned a ton. Uh, but I just, it wasn't quite for me, you know, consulting mm-hmm. wasn't quite for me, you know, private equity wasn't quite for me, both, you know, terrific occupations just wasn't a great fit. Yeah. So from there, um, what makes you say, okay, it's time to split? Uh, yeah, it, you know, the funny thing was, it's so odd, but, you know, so I had a, a great job. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I had this opportunity to work at uh, Clayton Dubler and Rice and, you know, a job that a lot of people would love to have had. And I, I realized, like, I would be getting up early in the morning to be reading and writing. I just thought, this is odd. Like, I should, you know, like, uh, I should be so happy to be going to this job. But I've always really liked, you know, kind of understanding how things work and and reading what other people have to say and um you know kind of pro- providing my own thoughts so you're, you're so one forth. of Gladwell's uh mavens <laughs> yeah i i guess yeah um uh or, or maybe just you know not cut out for the real world or something <laughs> but uh uh so anyway i was kind of drawn towards academia but you know given my college academic record you know a phd in classics was not in the offing so um i thought like yeah business you know there they have professors there. That seems like a good idea. I know a little bit about business. I'm interested in it. Uh, so I went to business school and then right from there got, uh, one did the doctorate and then became a professor after that. Right. What's, I mean, it's so interesting to me. My, um, my, my dad's been actually just retired. Um, but he basically was the guy who had, you know, one job. He was a professor. Oh, great. Um, oh, right. Research human cognition. So he largely ran a oh, lab neat. for probably 50 years, I guess. Wow. Um, that's I'm, really cool. I, I, and I'm always amazed when at, at uh, the world of academia because um, 
I'm I, I'm somebody who's so wired. My when I whenever I take a strength type of test, you know, love of learning and however they language, it always comes up, you know, number one or two. So I love, I just love devouring knowledge. Um, and I love teaching also, but the sort of the formal world of academia has always seemed just so layered. I have a background for a short period of time. I work for the federal government too. Mm -hmm. So there's something about, um, bureaucracy that mm, um mm -hmm. kind of gives me hives <laughs> but i think it's it's a fascinating world because you get these institutions where you know people come and they're just they're green and they want to learn mm -hmm. and you're in just this constant learning environment where your job i mean literally you're getting paid to just learn constantly yeah um and then turn around and share what you're discovering and then try and put pieces together that you know in a way that somebody else doesn't see to create something new and then share that um and it's it's it's, I think it's such a powerful path, but man, that whole world is changing so quickly now. Also, academia, I, I, I don't even know what it's going to look like in 10 years. Um, yeah. No, I, I, oh boy, do I hear you. Um, so, you know, a couple observations. One, the, the real pain in the neck is getting your union card. That is to say, like going through the doctorate and, you yeah, know, yeah. that's, that's really tough. And then you're, you know, you're kind of, uh, your apprenticeship as an assistant and an associate professor. So that, you know, that can be, um, uh, that is hard. No question. Um, and there is a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of forces that actually push people away from doing really interesting mm. research. But I think what, what I found just, you know, I've been in this long enough to see the folks who have really thrived in that environment and not just thrive professionally and done well, but also enjoyed it themselves. What I found is that in a funny way, they're entrepreneurial. I bet like your dad, you know, mm. they find something, a question they're really oh, interested yeah. in and they can tune out all the noise and the distraction and they can manage their bureaucracy, frustrating sometimes though it may be. And just hone in. And, and so I think it's ideal for folks like that. And, you know, that's, I mean, just to give one example, that's what really, that's when I knew that I loved being an academic was, so when I, the, one of the deals we did in Clayton Dubler and Rice was, you know, Goodrich Tire Company, where we bought this tire mm -hmm. company and ended up selling it off to Michelin. Uh, it's a great deal. Thank God. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, the question that played me. So we lived in Akron, Ohio for two years. I got to know a lot of these people in this industry. And what's so interesting was, Michelin came along with a much better technology, the radial tire, like twice as good as the old technology. Everybody in those companies, Goodyear, Firestone, Goodrich, you, uh, you know, they all saw this coming because Michelin first basically destroyed the tire industry in Europe because their technology was so much better mm. for a decade. Then they came to the U.S., build a plant, we're selling in Sears and so forth. Right. And so there was this very deep question, which is these are smart folks who know their industry, you know, and this is a threat that's coming. And everybody sees it coming. It's not like scribbling on the, you know, it's, it's the writing on the wall is yeah, 20 yeah. feet high and neon. Hey, and the trains moving in slow motion straight exactly. towards you. Yeah. And, you know, how could it possibly be that they could respond as ineffectively as they did? Um, and, you know, that was a question that, you know, kind of motivated my first seven, 10 years of research. And, it, but it was really, there was a lot of other noise going on in my career, but I just wanted to understand that. You know, and, and so I, I think, you know, and I suspect your father would be the same way. You know, he finds something oh, yeah. he loves and. I mean, he locks onto a question and just, you know, he's, he's locked. There's probably one overriding question that's driven him for years and, you know, for decades now. And, and uh, when he retired, actually, it was less about, um, stopping his research. It was just about sort of like getting to a point in his life where he just really wanted to do it on his own terms. And, uh, you know, he's got so many Latin affiliations and uh -huh. stuff that he can keep researching. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, he can just kind of like partner up with people he wants to partner up with and do yeah. it. So, um, he has no intention of, of not doing this anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah. Cause it's just, he wakes up and he lives and breathes it. You yeah. Know? And, and yeah, there's that hyper focused state, which, um, I see people, it, you know, it's interesting, like whether it's a burning question, you see a lot of artists who just mm, become obsessed with a medium or an exploration of light or something like that. And they'll latch onto it and it just pulls you so deeply from ahead that sometimes, sometimes, you know, to your detriment because the world around you basically doesn't exist anymore. And you're, yeah. you know, sometimes destroying everything else but it. But, um, but it is, yeah, I guess maybe there are more parallels between, um, people who really go, and do that and somebody who starts a company or, or a business because very often it's that same, there's a burning question or there's a need, you know, and there's a, there's a complex problem and I, I just really want to figure it out or I think I have it. Yeah. Um, so let me, I kind of have to build an engine around me to be able to give myself the gift of just exploring it full time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I really think there's a lot of the, at least the people I admire as scholars, I view them as very entrepreneurial. Mm. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. It actually makes a lot of sense. 
Um, you be, you become obsessed at some point with sort of the the interplay between strategy and execution. Is that kind of a bit of what you were talking about with the? Yeah, this is my big question. By the way, I, I, you must have been talking to my wife when you say obsessed <laughs> by this question. You know, it's kind of banned from dinner time discussion now. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it turns out that it, from my reading at least, in in my field of strategy, it is the big unanswered question. So we know a ton about a strategy, like how a company makes money, and you know how you position yourself in the marketplace, and how you leverage resources and capabilities. This we know, you know that Mike Porter, C.K. Prahalad, uh, you know, there have been great thinkers, a lot of theory, a lot of empirical evidence. We know a lot. We know virtually nothing on the question of once you have a great strategy, how do you get it done mm-hmm. in a large, complex organization? By the way, the world doesn't stand still waiting for you to implement yeah. your strategy. Um, so that, and, and again, it kind of goes back to my, my time in private equity, where as a consultant, we'd sit around in the bars, you know, afterwards and, you know, we'd say, we came up with a great strategy and we'd point, you know, point our, wag our fingers and right. say, but those, right. those clients, they didn't implement it. Well, then you go into private equity where you're not only owned, but you're running the company and say, we came up with a great strategy, but those, hold on a second, you know, <laughs> the fingers pointing back at us. Right, right. Uh, and that's where it really became clear to me. Again, a great question, like, you know, really talented people with huge incentives, clarity on the strategy. How do you get it done? That's a really hard question. Yeah. I mean, are there any big ahas that have really jumped out at you as saying, okay, this is one, this is one huge point of failure. That's where there's some actually reasonably direct fix or just questions to ask when you're at that point. Uh, yeah, there are a couple. I mean, the, the, the one that comes out in the simple rules book is that, um, uh, a lot of times people try to deal with complex, you know, they see a complex problem and they throw a complex solution at right. it. Um, you know, and so just to give a non-business example, the, the one that drives me nuts is the U.S. taxes, right? So the U.S. economy is complicated and, you know, regular, you know, policy and so all of these are, it's a complicated problem. The answer is the U.S. tax code, which is, you know, for those of U.S. citizens who just paid their tax, <laughs> four, almost four million words. Okay. Oh my God. Almost four million. What that means, it, what that means is you could chunk it up into novel sized books, read one a week. It would take you about 14 months to finish the tax code. And, and so that's in organizations. That's what we see. They're trying to get something done. So they throw the equivalent, the corporate equivalent of the tax code at the problem. But there are, there are some real problems with complicated solutions. So the first one is they're really expensive. Okay, so in the U.S., for instance, I was shocked when I read the statistic, but I double-checked it. It's true. The number of full-time equivalent tax preparers exceeds the number of police officers and firefighters combined. Okay, now I ask you, is that the optimal allocation of resources in society? I'm going to say probably not. Yeah, probably <laughs> not. Uh, the other thing is these complicated solutions are meant to dispel uncertainty by, you know, saying this is what happens right. and like, this is what you do. Here's a rule for everything you could ever imagine. For everything yeah. that could ever happen. The problem is they get so complicated, like the U.S. tax code, that they generate more uncertainty than they resolve. Yeah. So there was a study done a couple of years ago, a nice study. They gave 45 tax preparers an identical one-page uh, tax scenario for a couple and, you know, boom, boom, boom. 45 tax preparers, 45 different answers. Hmm. Now you could say, oh, well, that's just rounding error, a dollar here. No, no. They range from, uh, $36,000 to $94,000. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the IRS, by the way, by its own admission, gives bad advice one time out of three. And it's not because those IRS people aren't trying to do a good job. They are. It's just the code is so Byzantine and complicated that it obscures more than it clarifies. And the third disadvantage of these complicated solutions is People check out of complicated solutions, right? So again, there was another nice study done by a professor of accounting that looked at, uh, I think it was uh, uh, 45 or 50 countries and tried to measure what were the factors that influenced whether people paid their taxes or dodged their taxes. Single biggest factor was complexity of the tax code ahead of penalties for noncompliance, whether you're a cash business or not, the absolute tax rate, all the factors you'd think would matter were less important than complexity. Hmm. And we see this in other domains. For instance, there was a, a study that was done that looked at diets and fo- basically found people can lose, if they adhere to a diet, people can lose uh, weight on a complicated diet or a simple diet, but they're much more likely to stick with a simple that, diet. That makes sense. Yeah. Because so, so I think this was one of the, this on the, on the big question of execution, which I'm, you know, chipping it away at, uh, uh, but on, on the big question of how you execute strategy, what we talk about in this book is how you can actually have very effective, simple rules to manage critical activities uh, that allow you to translate your strategy into action and avoid all these costs of, you know, cumbersome, yeah. Byzantine. So it's really, I mean, so really the separation between strategy and execution is is not real then. I mean, because essentially 
to have an executable strategy, then the simplicity has to be dialed into this, you know, the strategic conversation or else you're just, you're going to come up with something that sounds really cool and covers every possible base, but nobody's ever going to be able to do anything with it. And that's like you said, that's business, that's art, that's life, that's behavior, that's weight loss, that's everything. Yeah. Um, it's interesting actually when you were talking, one of the things that popped into my head was, um, iTunes, you know, they weren't first to the market with, um, with downloading music, you know, there was Napster and there was, and everyone was doing it and, you know, illegally mm-hmm. for, I guess it was a couple of years. And it wasn't, and, and I think the big lesson was that, you know, people were like, well, once iTunes comes and you have to pay a buck a song or whatever it was when they started, you know, it's going to fail because people can do this for free. Mm-hmm. And I think the big shock to the system was, you know, everyone started paying. It was never that people didn't want to pay. It was just that, you know, there was nothing that was so straightforward and simple where you could actually just hit a button, pay your money, feel good about what you were buying. And it just, boom, it loaded onto whatever device you wanted to listen to. Everything else was so complex. So they went to the simplest thing available then, which was the peer to peer networks rather than, you know, the commercial offerings, which were kind of a disaster at the Mm -hmm. time. And just people couldn't figure them out. And then where's my song when I download it. But as soon as, as soon as, you know, there's iTunes becomes introduced and it's just, there's a massive amount of simplicity in the system. You know, people actually start paying for that where they were getting it for free yeah. on the side. And I think, I think that was, a, I mean, for me, I, I thought it was a really fascinating experiment. Yeah. Well, we, it's, it's a terrific point. I, and, you know, I sometimes in, in, um, explaining simple rules to people, I use exactly that metaphor, which is to say, if you look at how people, just as you were saying, look how people downloaded music before the iPod. Right. And it was, you know, you had hardware, you had software, it took you hours to get things configured. Then you yeah. needed, you know, you need to get the songs and you need to get them right for it. And, and so the system was very complex. A lot of moving parts that had to work together for you to get what you wanted, listen to music. And what, what the iPod did beautifully was presented user interfaces, very simple, very intuitive that managed the complexity. The complexity didn't go away in the sense you still needed to get your music, you still need right. the hardware, you still need the software. But the interface was simple, intuitive, human, usable. Yeah. And and that's what simple rules are. The systems we deal with remain complex, but we provide they provide an interface that allow people commit to manage that complexity in a more intuitive, natural, um, effective, but also human way. Yeah. And you know, I think we see this really being exalted in technology these days, especially, I mean, you know, uh, user interface, you know, UI, UX, um, 10 years ago and the, and design, the importance of, uh, you know, the importance of those three things, even 10 years ago, I think they were kind of like, okay, we need those, we'll hire them, but they're kind of sunk costs. Um, but now you know, like the people who are great at, I mean, these are the people who everybody looks to, to say, how do we take this yeah. and make it so it's, it's just simple you know it's it's anyone can just play with this and it feels light when and and i think there's a much bigger understanding of the importance of that these days and i wonder whether and tell me if you've sort of explored this i wonder whether part of what's going on is that life in general is becoming so layered and so complex that we're it's almost on an individual level we're just we're that much more desperate for simplicity um, wherever we can find it. And, and to a certain extent, we'll, we'll seek it out and pay more if we can. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's almost certainly the case. I mean, I have colleagues at MIT who are very systematic about measuring complexity in different domains. And what's interesting, part of the background of this book was just trying to get our arms around, you know, defining complexity and measuring it. What we find is pretty much by any measure, what you're saying is exactly right. That complexity has increased pretty dramatically two, four, six, eight fold over the span of, you know, a couple of decades. So if you look at interdependence of the financial system, you know, which leads to, we wouldn't have had 2008 meltdown if there weren't such interdependence and layering, you know, technological systems, you know, orders of magnitude, more parts interacting with each other and, you know, airplanes and computer systems, software and so forth. Um, uh, you know, organizations, working in ecosystems rather than trying to do it all themselves, you know, complicated supply chains. And the way, uh, you know, the way the systems dynamics folks have thought most deeply about complexity define it. They say it's multiple, multiple moving parts that interact with each other in unpredictable ways. Hmm. And if you think that that's pretty much describes life these right, days. Exactly. So yeah, no, I think you're dead on. <laughs> it's like you open your eyes, it's like boom. Yeah, that's it. Right. <laughs> that's what hits you in the face. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers, outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn Ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work-focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So seasons change. So why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus, complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time, only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals, or just click the link in the show notes. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So why do, um, I guess one of the, one of my curiosities too, and I know you speak about it in the book, and, and, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have is, is what need does complexity serve? You know, if it's been around for so long and it seems to only be getting worse, you got to figure it serves some need. So what? <laughs> well, uh, new combinations create new possibilities, right? So if you think, so we've got, you know, if you think of the explosion of the internet, we now then, you know, through eBay or other mechanisms, we can connect, you know, we can buy some thing from someone we've never met in Kazakhstan with every you know, assurance that it'll get to our door. You know, we can, uh, through online platforms, we can, you know, borrow somebody's house for a night with Airbnb. And, you know, so what it, interdependencies, more moving parts working together, create opportunities for novel combinations. And, you know, the whole sharing economy has grown out of interdependencies that didn't exist historically. Uh, so complexity is, brings great boom, you know, in terms of, uh, novel opportunities through novel connections. Um, but it also brings, Risks, contagion spread, you know, financial contagion right. spread. Um, uh, very hard for people to understand where to intervene to get, you know, the outcomes they desire. Uh, and at the human level, it's just very, very daunting to try to manage complex systems. Yeah. And like you said, also, there's 
there are vast industries built around becoming the complexity managers between you, you know, like the tax preparers, perfect example. A lot of consultants. Right. You know, and that's all about, okay, you know, like here's somebody that doesn't want to have to understand it, but they know they have to abide by it or leverage it in some way. Yeah. And you know, like here's the outcome that they want. And if, so you're the person in the middle who says, okay, I'm going to do all the hard work to understand it and basically trans, I'm going to be the translator. You know, and I'm, I'm going to translate what the thing is, and then I'm going to tell you according to this, this is what we should do. Yeah. And um, I mean, you see it in cars too. I mean, mechanics used to be when I was a kid, you know, I, I drove Jeeps for years, uh, right? You basically like three wrenches. You could yeah. take the entire car apart, yeah, right, just right. leave it in your driveway. Right. Um, and now I read an article um, a couple of years ago, and it was um, about how BMW couldn't find enough qualified people to go to mechanic to become mechanics for their yeah. cars because essentially it was like you, know, you need to be an engineer yeah. um and the, and it was a very well paying job and they put you through their own you know internal university to actually do this and because the whole generation that had come up that were great mechanics for the cars of you know like a generation ago um they're you know we're driving on computers now mm-hmm. and it's a completely different level of complexity so your average mechanic now is not you know is less um, i guess I look at it as less artisan, but maybe that's not really the right thing. Maybe you're very much still an artisan, but it's just the level of complexity has gone up dramatically. And, and you know, in something on every, when you look at it like that, it's just where doesn't it appear in the system these days? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and no, I think that's right that there's, there's clearly a uh, complexity that's grown, particularly in these mechanical systems. I just want to pick up on something you mentioned that, uh, earlier, which I think is also an important point, which is there are people who benefit from complexity. Mm. Okay. So if you take financial advisors, for instance, um, you know, they have a lot of incentive and this isn't a, you know, a dig at them individually, but if you just think structurally around their incentives, they have a lot of incentives to present financial decisions as hugely complex so that you, you know, are willing to hire them to na- help you navigate that. Um, and and yet, you know, there there's some evidence that suggests that's not the case. So I'll just tell you one one uh, story we give in the book, which I think is a is a very nice story. So uh, there's a guy named uh, Harry Markowitz who won the Nobel Prize. Really, you know, like a great great thinker in finance, and he pioneered a very complicated way of thinking about how you allocate your assets. So if you've got ten different stocks and ten bonds, what's the optimal allocation for a level of risk that you're willing to uh, incur? He wins the Nobel Prize for this. So there were some finance professors recently who took his model and a couple of minor variants of that model and tested it against a simple rule. Okay. And the simple rule is called the one over N rule. And the one over N rule says if you got 10 asset classes, each one gets one tenth. If you have of your available funds, if you have 20, each gets one twenty. Okay. So the simplest rule you can possibly imagine, right? Run the test, 28 different data sets and, and, and uh, against, for, uh, against uh, different models. One over N rule wins 80% of the time, outperforms <laughs> oh, this Nobel Prize winning model 80% of the time. E- more interesting than that, fif- it never loses money for investors. 50%, over 50% of the time, the other models lose money for investors. This is before you add in fees that are typically associated yeah. with these complex models. And, you know, kind of a funny postscript to this is Markowitz himself uh, uh, acknowledged later in his career that when he had to allocate resources for his own investment, uh, for his own uh, retirement fund, he used the one over end rule. <laughs> you know? So it's and so I'm not saying we didn't learn a lot through Markowitz's model. We did. He helped us to think very clearly about the trade off between risk and reward. But, you know, actually, in terms of robust findings about what we know works for, you know, personal financial um uh, uh, investment, uh, you know, a handful of simple rules can work really well. And, but there are folks who have deep incentives for you not to know that and not to believe that. Hmm. That is so interesting. I, I, I remember back, um, back in the day when, uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal was doing that, they would have their dartboard. Oh, right. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they, yeah. they just like throw, <laughs> put up a page from the Wall Street Journal, like, you know, and they throw a dart and whatever, like that's the stock. And then they would compare it to, you know, like their chosen expert of the week. Yeah. And, I I don't know if this is lore or not, but like what I always heard was it discontinued that because eventually the darts were just beating the experts so consistently that it was a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, well, and and I I heard the same thing, and I, I, it's it's a good story even if it's not true. But um, the uh, but no, there's been very systematic research that basically shows. Um, it's almost impossible for mutual fund managers, for instance, asset managers to consistently beat the market. There are some exceptions. You know, Bill Gross at PIMCO had a terrific run. Um, uh, you know, Lynch at Fidelity had a terrific run. But they are – it is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of 1% that fall into that category. Yeah. 
and what's interesting too is I think there are so many there there's so much um mechanism there's so much institution built around huge systems I mean look at the tax code right and look yeah. at the IRS yeah um that it becomes you know when you look at that cuz you're like well okay so if it if it's really that clear that you know in the investment world one rule beats all the other stuff it's if it's kind of crystal clear that you know if it, you take the IRS code and you simplify it down to 10 rules and you're going to get largely the same outcomes wh- why don't we do it and i think you know, part of the reason obviously is there's 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 such massive financial interest um on so many different layers in not doing that so which you know makes you just come face to face with this kind of brutal question, which is then what, you know, mm-hmm. the, what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we actually start to, you know, can we, can we use this idea to, you know, that, that okay, sometimes simplicity, just really basic stuff. Okay. We know it to be true. This is going to work equally, if not better. How do we use that knowledge to then help make a transition from large, massive, complex, incredibly wasteful and dysfunctional institutions that have, you know, they're providing, I mean, frankly, you know, tens of thousands of jobs, if not millions, because a, a probably a big part of that. I mean, tax preparers go out of business and you know, 97% of the IRS probably goes away. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? <laughs> Although, I, I mean, just parenthetically, it frees up a lot of resources for it, more oh, well, productive. Absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah, and I guess yeah. that's the other argument. Yeah. You know, let's go look at what we can invest now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, is and part of what we're really passionate about in this book is just helping people to recognize that simple solutions can work. A lot of times, yeah. simple is is dismissed as simplistic. That is to say, oh yeah, yeah, that's just you know kind of stupid. And um, so we're on a you know kind of a crusade to help. You know, there's this thing we call it the myth of requisite complexity. This belief that complex problems need complex solutions, and sometimes that is true. And in the book, we talk about the conditions under which that is. Right. It was true. like medical and you know, like yeah, there are certain, certain or, domains yeah. where uh, you know you complicate solutions are optimal and we you know kind of tease that out in the book but there are a lot of problems for which you don't need a complicated solution uh, to a complicated problem so the first thing is just helping people understand that and building legitimacy of simple approaches to complex problems and and that is so that's part of it it's not all of it but that at least is something that we as as um, academics can do i think the second thing people can do is um, provide evidence. So one of the things in the, uh, the I, I had the opportunity to do an interesting study with about 40 companies, uh, members of the Young President's organization, where we'd inter- uh, uh, they'd adopt simple rules for a critical process, choosing customers or new product development, whatever it was, and then measure results. Okay. And what's very interesting is results are compelling. You know, if you yeah. see, and in some of these cases are quite dramatic increases and improvements in their financial performance pretty quickly. People saw that. That kind of dispelled a lot of the argument, cut through a lot of the smoke. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, got people to say, yeah, wow, this does, does work. The third thing I would mention is you don't, there are a lot of choices. And this is one thing back to this execution question. You know, there are a lot of things. If you're in a big organization or a big society and you say like, oh gosh, there are all these problems that I can't solve myself individually. But there are a lot of things that people can solve, you know, it, decisions that they're making on a day-to-day basis with colleagues around how they allocate resources, for instance, or, um, you know, how they make decisions, how they choose which customers prioritize. And you can just take in your, or, or even personal decisions, you're trying to, you know, lose weight or do better at online dating or whatever it is, where you can, you know, try, it. you know, develop some simple mm-hmm. rules, test how they work um, within your own domain. And what, I guess what we hope is, what we very much hope is that when we legitimize uh, simple rules, and simple rules, by the way, we have a rigorous process for how you develop them, and they're based on data and experience. So it's not just you know gut feel. This isn't blink. We're not saying right. gut feel is good. Actually, the exact opposite is true. We often think the unexamined rules are not worth following. You know, you need to surface your rules and test them. But uh, you know, we hope to both legitimize and also show people through you know kind of practical steps. Try it. Use it yourself. Solve a problem that you're facing. And, you know, see if it works. And if it works for you, you know, then it'll, we hope, kind of propagate this approach. Right. So it's almost like a revolution approach or a movement approach. It's like, okay, step one on an individual level, kind of put on the simple rule mindset hat. Yeah. You know, like whenever I approach something, can I, is is there a way to do this um, that's different, that's simpler, that's, you know, like you said, simplistic and simple, different. Um, but is there a way that's more streamlined that's where there's a set of simple rules that will get the same job done with a lot less waste, a lot less complexity, a lot less time? And if so, why not test that? Right. Um, and so sorry, I, if I could interrupt for yeah, just yeah, one no, second, because this is a huge big deal for us. Um, the, 
if if people walk away from this book or this you know the discussion that we're hoping to spur here thinking only one thought which is i have a choice if i see a complicated problem in my personal life my organization society i have a choice between a complicated solution and a simple solution if that's all they walk away with we will be very happy. You know, simple mm-hmm. rules is one approach to simplicity. There are many others. Uh, you know, it's one that we happen to have researched, we know a bit about. But the broader point is we, as people, we have a choice. When we face complexity, we have a choice between a simple solution and a complex solution. And just recognizing that, I think, that I'm shocked. I, I work a lot with organizations and management teams. I'm just shocked how frequently a complicated solution is default mode. Like it's just, you know, they don't even, they don't even recognize that there is a possibility to handle this simply, even though they're frustrated personally with complicated yeah. solutions. So it's almost like it couldn't be good enough if it's that simple. Exactly. It's, yeah. They dismiss simplicity as, yeah. um, yeah. As a, I guess part of the message also is then, um, if the only thing that you're looking at is complex, take more time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because there's got to be something like you know where is the the you know, the, the the simpler approach, and maybe you're not going to choose it, but at least own the fact that there is going to be something very likely out there. If what you're looking at is you know like a morass of complexity, yeah, there is something else. So find it, and then make the choice rather than just defaulting to yeah the sort of like this complex system. And if I if I may, I'll just give you one example that I think is a, a terrific example, not in, at the personal level, just to give folks yeah. a sense how to personalize it. So you know we're just we're overwhelmed by you know there must be five ten new studies every week about what to eat if you want to be healthy. You know yeah. tomatoes oh, cause cancer, <laughs> tomatoes are, it'll cure cancer. You know oh, you know that's they're both published the same week. What do you do? And so people resort to these complicated diets and this, and I can only do this on Tuesdays and the full moon and so forth because, you know, they want to be healthy. That's something a lot of people want. Well, it turns out Michael Pollan, who, you know, is a, a, a real, uh, you know, really influential and very thoughtful uh, person on diet, he has these three simple rules, which are basically eat food, i.e. not processed. Your great-grandparents would recognize it as food, mostly plants and not too much, you know, and it turns out. And people could, you know, back to this point about dismissing, they say, oh, that's way too simplistic. Well, no, actually, there was a professor at Yale uh, who heads their diet and nutrition center, so very credible scholar, did a review. He's actually written the book on diet and nutrition, you know, a, a textbook, reviewed thousands and thousands of studies for what findings were robust. So tomatoes kill you, tomatoes cure you. Okay, let's those kind of cancel each other out. They're not robust findings. But what do we really know? It turns out, and he wrote a really nice article, academic article, but really nice. He basically said, Pollen's right. It's like eat mm. minimally processed foods, mostly plants, not too much. That's what we know. You know, yeah. so you can, th- there's this whole industry out there selling you the latest diet and the latest fad, but both, you know, from the pollen kind of studying in an almost anthropological way, and then also this much more large, big data driven analysis kind of converges on actually you follow those rules you'd be in pretty good shape yeah and and it gets to the fact that for somehow we've convinced ourselves that um the simple answer can't be it can't be as valid as the complex answer so i think i mean that's a huge awakening it's just to kind of like know that you know what maybe more times than not it is yeah <laughs> um so look at it and give it an equal credence and test it you know first if you can because it's probably going to be a lot easier to test um i had a friend of mine that actually started uh um she wanted to just make some behavior changes so but she didn't want to you know do all the different diets stuff like that so she's like all right i'm going to commit to one green smoothie a day i can do that mm-hmm. it's my only rule one mm-hmm. green smoothie and like it literally it became you know, Charles Duhigg's uh, Keystone Habit, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it triggered a whole bunch of series of other things just unintentionally. And she ended up becoming so much healthier and losing weight. And so like a sin- one single thing. Yeah. That was a simple rule for her. One green smoothie a day. Yeah. And it rippled out into this profound change. And it was because it was doable. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like she said, I can do one thing a day. Yeah. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAS Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. 
So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish, right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAS Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with ACAS Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, let me give you, I mean, one of the things that I think we're uh, most pleased about with the book is that we've kind of come up with a process. And it's not just we came up with this, like we're, you know, we're academics, like we've got 30 pages of footnotes, you know, like it's all based on research. But one of the things that's, I think. Like, don't, don't you get fired if you don't have sort of minimum. Uh, yeah, exactly. 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 There, are, there aren't enough footnotes Sorry, there. Yeah. 20 more pages of footnotes. Yeah, exactly. Just make them up. It doesn't matter. No. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. So it's, um, but it, it's based on research and it's basically a, a three-step process. And what I like about this is because simple rules are meant to be a practical tool. So if we had some theoretical discussion without any practical tips, it would not be, you know, helpful to people. And that yeah. wouldn't be what we're trying to achieve. So, um, and I'll give you my uh, personal example just because it's, um, uh, it's, you know, a good example of personal. So I bought a bunch of shirts and f- at the same size I used to wear and they didn't fit. And I was really ticked off, you know, because I spent a lot of money and I'm a real cheapskate. So I'm like, oh, this is killing me. You know, I just, and I bought like 20 of them because I thought, oh, buy them in mass. Right. You get, they're cheaper. So these, these shirts didn't fit. So I decided, okay, I got to, you know, this isn't quite working for me. So I want to come up with some simple rules. And I go through a process. I just use this to illustrate the process. So the first thing is to, uh, what we say is called understand what will move the needles for you. So to step one, understand what will move the needles for you. And it turns out psychologists have a lovely notion that there are basically things that make our life more fulfilled. And that's kind of the top needle. And you want to push that up to give our lives meaning. There are also things that cause us stress or anxiety. And you want to push that down. And by the way, they're not the same needle because, for instance, you know, as an author, writing it stresses you out, but the fulfillment should outweigh right. the stress. So you net out with a gain in the, you know, the, the, the delta between those two needles. So first of all, understand what will move the needles for you and clearly articulate that. So for me at first, it was like fitness, you know, feeling younger. And I was basically like, no, it's just fitting these shirts. Like I really, you know, this is driving me nuts. So, you know, clarity on that was helpful. Yeah. Then the second step is what we say, identify a bottleneck that is a specific activity or decision that will influence your ability to either do more of what is meaningful to you or, in this case, decrease what is causing you anxiety or stress. 
Uh, and so at first I was thinking like, oh, maybe I'll exercise more. Then just looked at my calendar. I don't have any time to exercise more. And, you know, you know, at my age, my knees won't tolerate any more mm-hmm. exercise. So, you know, I talked to some people. I said, well, you know, it looks like diet actually matters more in terms of losing weight. So, okay. So focus on diet initially. And one thing about the bottleneck, the, the narrower you can make it, the better. So I actually, I got one of these little fitness apps yeah. um, and tracked, you know, my exercise and food for a, a week. And what I thought was really interesting is basically the real problem, it was fine, breakfast, lunch, you know, dinner were all okay. Post-dinner snacks, mm. all hell broke loose. You know, it was like, hey, it was a bottle of Cabernet and some Benadryl. Yeah, exactly. You know, and all, I'm and, getting all day, but there's like that witching hour, like, what's the weed mother of God? Am I not like, I'm, better, me, I'm a better man than this. Give me more potato <laughs> chips. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and the thing is, it turns out we did a little research on this and it's basically the punchline is willpower is a reservoir, not a stream. That is to say right. you deplete it through the day. By the end of the day, you're just tired and you don't have much willpower. So I realized I was eating the equivalent of a lunch or two every night after dinner. So I said, okay, my bottleneck is going to be not all eating, but snacking after dinner. So very narrow bottleneck. And that makes it helpful to develop the rules. And it was only then that I went and kind of developed the rules. And I read a little bit. I talked to some friends, didn't invest a ton of time, but, you know, came up with some rules like uh, no snacks on weekend. That was actually hearing uh, 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 Michelle Obama make that suggestion. I thought, that's a great idea. You know, another one is... Eat out of a bowl, not out of the bag. So mm. it turns out there's some terrific research about how portions really influence how, you know, size of container influence portion, portion influence caloric consumption. Uh, and then don't stockpile snacks. So I'd go to the store and I'm like, I'm going to take 20 of those. And, you know, and then if they're 20 in the cupboard, you're going to eat, you know, 15 of them or whatever it is. Right. Uh, and those, those simple rules, you know, for me, I lost 15 pounds in, you know, under two months, mm. uh, which is, was, was perfect. But the point that, and, and we give a, we have two whole chapters devoted to this in the book, but we talk about this process of clarify what will move the needles for you, whether it's a business or personally, identify that critical activity or decision, mm. and then develop and test the rules. And that, I think, is really helpful for people who want to, you know, kind of put this into action, try it. Yeah. No, I love that. I love the fact that you just look a very real-world individual um, thing like that as well. Um, and I'm just thinking, okay, tonight when I go shopping, yeah, <laughs> leave the bags on the shelf. Um and I think so many people have that, that similar, uh, challenge too. Um, how do you know when you've got the right rules? It's, uh, so it's a great point. It's a great question. It's, um, uh, you know, one of the points we constantly make is this is a data driven exercise. This is not an excuse to just trust your gut because your gut is often wrong, you know, mm-hmm. notwithstanding this research on trust your intuition. There are some domains where intuition works reasonably well, but there are a lot of domains when it doesn't. So, you know, use tests. So one, just in that little silly diet example, you know, in that case, it was pretty easy. I knew that, you know, I was, do I fit my shirt or not? Intermediate variable to test right. that is what's my weight? You know, as it came down, I, I know, knew it was uh, making progress. Um, and initially, by the way, what I had was, uh, uh, so that's one way of measuring it, you know, data. The other thing is comp- whether you're actually following the rules and you can just kind of keep track of that. Mm. And, you know, initially I had this rule, no desserts ever. Well, you, you know, that, Pol Pot school of weight management didn't work for me. It's like, you know, yeah. I, I need a little wine come the weekend. So I did, if came, came to the thing, okay, weekend's okay, but the rest of the day's not. Um, and that's what we see, you know, when we've done experiments with companies, for instance, organizations. I mean, that's one of the things we insist on is before you implement the rules, uh, figure out how you're going to measure success and commit to gathering that data. Right. Because it not only lets you, I mean, it has a lot of benefits. One, you always have to make mid-course corrections to your rules. You have a rule, the first set of rules you develop is a hypothesis. You know, it's typically two-thirds, 80% right. Almost always needs refinement. Uh, two, uh, you want the users involved in making the rules because they're best situated to see if they're working or not. Um, uh, and it's really um, that commitment to the measurement then gives you also evidence if it's working. You know, so it helps you to get things on track so they do work. It also then shows, look, you know, this is a simple approach, but look at the benefits. Right. You know, we've we've had examples, especially working with these companies, you know, dramatic increases in profitability in a very short period of time through what initially people were skeptical of because they thought, oh, that's too simple. We couldn't possibly, yeah. you know, uh, increase our sales by 50% using simple rules. Wow, there's the data. We did, you know, at which point the, you know, the theoretical discussion goes away. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, and I, I still agree that it's, um, some people really resist the idea of measuring, but I think you got to figure out what's the right metric and yeah. you've just got to be on it. Um, 
you know, and if psychologically you have trouble with like, you know, because they're, they're going to be sort of like your rebels were like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I can't be measured. I can't be boxed like that. But if you're actually trying to do something substantial, you have to figure out the metric and you have to be able to, to measure it. Um, last question for you. So the, the name of this is a uh, good life project. So if I actually offer that out to you, the phrase to live a good life, what does that actually mean to you? Uh, to me personally, it's about making the right commitments and honoring them. So it's, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in philosophy and I, you know, my kind of brutally reductionist history of philosophy is, you know, we started out as deists where meaning in life. So, you know, meaning matters a lot, right? You know, that you feel like you're leading a meaningful life. And historically we've gotten meaning by attaching ourselves to something that it was inherently meaningful, God or democracy or something. And then along comes Friedrich Nietzsche and says, you know, God is dead. I.e. anything that seems inherently meaningful is a construct that we've made. Well, that leaves us in kind of a cul-de-sac, you know, like how do you, you know, how, how do you have meaning if there's nothing out there that's inherently meaningful? Uh, and there's a terrific philosopher who died recently uh, named Nozick, um, who wrote a, a book called, uh, uh, philosophical explorations, terrific, terrific book. And one of the points he makes in this book, one of the many brilliant insights he has is that actually meaning doesn't, uh, result from attack, committing yourself to something inherently meaningful. It results from the act of commitment itself. Even if that thing, you know, your children or your family or your career or, you know, some question or startup is not inherently meaningful. And that I think is a terrific, terrific insight. And so for me, that's the, that's the heart of the, the good life is committing to something that matters to you and really, you know, living through that, you know, honoring that commitment as, as things get hard. Love it. Thank you so much. Terrific. Thank you. Hey, I really enjoyed that conversation. If you found it valuable as well, um, would so appreciate if you would just head on over to iTunes, take a couple of seconds, and uh, let us know. Share, um, share a review or a rating. Always honest. And um, if you found this episode, the conversation, valuable, and you think other people, maybe friends or family, would enjoy it and benefit from it, go ahead and share it with them as well. And as always, if you want to know what's going on with us at Good Life Project, then head over to goodlifeproject.com. And that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project.